1: There is such a thing as a non-essentialist who is just driven, capable, successful, but has plateaued in their progress because they're trying to do everything.
0: Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with my friend, Greg McKeown, author of Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. You should listen to this show if you wanna learn how you can ensure you prioritize your life effectively so that other people don't do it for you. In other words, how to live by design, not by default. Also, how to say no effectively without getting into trouble at home or getting fired, setting hard boundaries between work and play or non-work, and why folks who are originally very good at essentialism can end up ruining their career and their sanity by letting these boundaries slip over time. Enjoy this one with Greg McEwen. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the Art of Charm toolbox where we discuss concepts like Body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion, networking, negotiation, mentorship, and everything else we teach here at The Art of Charm. In the U.S., just text CHARMED to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. Also at theartofcharm.com podcast, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes. All right, here's Greg McEwen. First of all, what is essentialism, and then how is it different from just Being a minimalist. What it is, it's a book about the antidote to the problem.
1: The problem. The problem is that we are full of the undisciplined pursuit of more. People everywhere can feel this. So it's a cultural phenomenon. It is feeling busy but not productive. It's feeling stretched too thin at work or at home. It's feeling like other people's agenda kind of hijack your own on a daily basis. Now, that's the experience people are having. And the reason that they're having it is probably a broader conversation. Sure. But, but that's like the challenge, the undisciplined pursuit of more. Everybody's just being pulled up into this cultural norm. Essentialism is the antidote to that. Right. That's the discipline. The, the disciplined pursuit of less, the as the subtitle exactly. indicates. The disciplined pursuit of less but better. It's about quantity versus quality. Instead of just trying to always more, more, more of everything, like the key to success, in fact, is doing more and fitting more in essentialism says, no,
0: it's about doing less but better, fewer things done better, that this is really the way to break. It. And this is different from minimalism because minimalism sort of has a connotation that has to do with possessions, physical items, whereas essentialism is about your working life or about your day-to-day, your calendar, not intangibles. Maybe. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, I use the metaphor of the closet to explain the process of essentialism, Uh, Your closet's overloaded, right? And eventually you say, I'm going to tidy it out. And you have to become more selective, thoughtful about what you really want and what you don't want. Uh, You have to get more extreme criteria of the things you love versus the things that you just like or you might use eventually. And then you eliminate. You get rid of the stuff that you don't isn't as high on your criteria list. There's a question that's been put by uh, Marie Kondo, which is, does it spark joy? You should ask of each item, does it spark joy? If it doesn't, pass it on. So, That's a metaphor for essentialism, but the whole idea is essentialism is doing for your life what Marie Kondo's whole approach does for your closet.
0: Right, so essentially, instead of saying... No pun intended. Yeah, that yeah. Was, I'm sure that happens all the time. Never. If you're taking things out of your closet or out of your house, you're trying to do the minimalist thing, and it's like, okay, is this something I'm really interested in? Is there something in me that loves this and just can't bear to part with it? Or is it just the anxiety of like, but I might need that serial cable That's right. at some point. No, the
1: fear of missing out, right. FOMO, right, FOMO. is really real. And and both with minimalism and now with essentialism, we have to discover the joy of missing out right? or, or JOMO. JOMO, Jomo right? all Sorry, right. Exactly, use another phrase. Uh, and, and there really is joy
0: in it, right? There really is value in less. How do you make that transition though? Because it seems like FOMO I can do, right? Oh man, this person's got this other thing going on. Uh, should I speak at this event here? Should I do that one? Which one's going to be bigger? Which one am I going to regret missing more? Oh, this person said, this event is amazing. I have to go to it. It's really expensive, but if I don't go, I'll be the only one that wasn't there, right? That I can do. Jomo joy of missing out. I can't, really remember a time where I was like well actually that might not be true but it's rare to have a time where I'm laying on my couch with my cat or binging on Netflix or reading a book even as much as I love reading going I'm so glad I'm not at that boat party that my friend's having or I'm so glad I'm not going to this event I mean it's pretty rare usually I think I hope there's nothing there that I really needed to do. Mm-hmm. I still have that anxiety yeah, in the back yeah, of my
1: head. Yeah, you're saying that you've experienced one, but don't experience the other very often.
0: Right. I don't, there's a lot of FOMO. I'm low on JOMO.
1: Yeah, so, so this would be consistent with the idea that that's our normal culture. Like, I'm guessing that you didn't wake up one day and say, I am just going to really worry about all the other stuff that's going on. I'm going to choose that as a strategy. No, I, no. I, that's my thing. I want to always worry about what I'm not going to. Even when I'm at something great, I want to be thinking, This isn't a
0: deliberate, chosen, conscious strategy. No, but it does work. 97% of the things I worry about never happen. So obviously, (laughs) it has been effective so So, far. So
1: this idea, the question I'm putting to you really is, why is it that you and so many people are so tilted so much towards this strategy?
0: It's a default strategy. It's a default strategy.
1: I'm arguing something about this. I'm saying that we have a culture that's so dominant towards this feeling that it's not just the normal default circumstance of all society forever. Right. We live in a particularly extreme version of society, right? So I think we're in a busyness bubble now. Like a FOMO bubble. Exactly. Whatever the name of it is, it's a bubble of more. (laughs) And so what we have all sort of grown up in is this culture. I mean, even over the last 10 years, we've gone from being connected to hyper-connected. Yeah, tell me about it. Smartphones. Smartphones, social media. These things have come together to create a kind of unholy alliance. And so people keep on getting dragged into this cultural norm. To find any antidote, we have to understand the environment we're in. Have you heard the phrase, fish discover water last?
0: Uh, no, but it makes perfect sense, makes sense. right? This is, we, we have to, just like it took you until you were 16 to get glasses. You were maybe the, one of the last ones to figure to, out what's to going figure it
1: on. It's something that's so normal to yeah. you. You
0: don't know that it's
1: even happening. Right. And that's what's going on. So when you talk about FOMO, you're not just talking about your own experience. You're talking about the norm of today. And I think that that's what makes essentialism have the power of relevancy the idea is that in this environment, in an environment where not just you, but everybody just about that you know, Mm -hmm. and everybody that you're interviewing and talking to, and everyone who's watching this, their normal life, and all their friends, in that environment, you can't just go with the flow unless you want all the consequences of this cultural norm. So this is the name for this is non-essentialism, right? Uh It's just everyone believes that by doing everything, you will be more successful, you'll be happier, you'll have more meaningful life.
0: Now, if it's true, meaning if that works for people, great. Right. It might have worked up until the 80s and 90s when you literally could no longer do everything, everything. that's that, that's coming your way. Right? Like my no dad way. did everything. Uh, you know, auto worker at Ford, worked his way up the ladder, worked 12 plus probably 14 hour days, six days a week, getting everything done, burned himself out. That was without email. That was without cell phones. That right. was without social media. That was without being able to be reachable most hours of the day. you
1: proposed that at the beginning of that little anecdote by saying it worked. Before the end of the anecdote, he
0: burned himself out. It was physically possible. That's what I mean by it worked. Right. It was physically possible. I,
1: I love the distinction. So you're right, because as the internet continues to be the news, right, as it affects so much and it has expanded our options so exponentially, it means it is not even close to being possible. I was talking to a really driven, even successful executive just recently Uh, on Sand Hill Road. Where all the venture capitalists are. Exactly. And he said he was reading the book and he said he realized that this was important for him because he said it's not like if I had two or three hours extra every day that I'd be okay. He said, I need like 300 hours a day and I'd still not have enough. You wouldn't even make it through your Twitter feed. So he just gets that the expectation has expanded so far, so much. And he's a smart guy. He's a thoughtful person. But still, he has adopted a set of expectations that are, by his own admission, more than 10 times more than he can possibly do on a daily basis. Right. So there's been this sea change of expectations, sea change of choices and options, this cultural norm. And if we just apply the same basic approach, you know, 20 years ago even, then I think we will, we will reap a set of rewards that are different than what we've
0: been sold. I do agree, but it's so hard to beat it into yourself, and it must be really hard to beat it into other people, especially if we don't necessarily know what you're talking about just yet. Yeah, I think that people, as they get the language for this, don't argue against the logic
1: of it. So I think the primary value of writing the book Essentialism was giving language. There is such a thing as a non-essentialist who is just driven,
0: capable, successful, but has plateaued in their progress because they're trying to do everything. You say in the book that if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. That's probably been true forever. But now we see it happening when we're home eating dinner and we're on our phone and you see that email, and don't pretend like you don't know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. see that email come in from your boss or your business partner and you go, because this happens, (laughs) what is it? That never happened. This is a recent 10 years phenomenon.
1: That's right, and that little moment of what is it can be so extreme under some Mm -hmm. circumstances it is a form of addiction, right? When we sure. check email 150 times a day, which is the average right now, <laughs> at the highest really? levels, yeah, the highest Ridiculous. levels is 900 times a day. So that means every minute on the hour, 16 hours a day. And, and of course, we have great data on this. Every, every, every minute for on, 16, for 16 hours. hours a day, someone is checking their phone at the highest levels. Absolutely. And, and here's why we have great data on it is because all you have to do is you just measure how many times someone swipes on their phone. This a Time oh, magazine came yeah. out with this uh, research. I mean, I don't know where they get their batteries from. I mean, all that's a different thing. Sure. But it means that when we used to talk about addiction, we were technology and so on. We were saying it like a metaphor, but it's real. It's a real addiction right. this is that happening people feel there. is to do with the idea that sometimes something amazing is going to happen. Sometimes something terrible is going to happen and you never know which. Right. So, so people are, are caught in for both reasons. It's is like it something amazing? Machine. Is it something terrible? It literally is like a slot machine for people. So again, this is the norm. This is the problem. And it's the problem that successful people and organizations and societies face because, so I'm working with Silicon Valley companies and trying to understand why is it that otherwise successful people and companies don't break through to the next level yeah. of success. Great question. They should because yes. if you and I would have a race, for example, right? And you won, which you would. I don't know. And, you and, got some good you, running shoes. Yeah, on that's today. just a con for, for making it look like I'm a runner. And let's say you won by 50 yards. Okay. So then we race a second time. And you get to start with a 50-yard advantage right from the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you win again.
0: Right. By this time, 50 by, yards. Yeah.
1: So now you're 100 yards ahead. And we race a third time. So just give me an average approximate percentage
0: chance you'll win the third race sure. beginning with 100 yards. Yeah. Give me a number. 99.9%. It's a little bit rude. Any, any injury, barring any injuries, 100%. am you are going to win, right? Of course, yeah.
1: that's what's going to happen. So here's the question that's kept me up at night all through these years of trying to understand is why doesn't that happen? When you look at the data, as I have, of the successful people and organizations, they don't continue in their success, and they don't break through to the next level, which they also ought to do, because they have all the benefits of momentum, they have all the benefits of having won the first race and the second race, and they don't continue to do it. Why? Is wiring? Yeah, why? Why? So here's what I learned. Again, it was sort of this fish discover water last. It was hidden in plain sight. The reason that successful people and organizations don't break through to the next level is success. So here's how it works. Go back to the Silicon Valley companies. You get a few people, small team, focused on the right problem at the right time, and they generate success. Sure. This is natural to be expected. What comes with success? Increase in options hmm. and opportunities. Sure. Now, that sounds like the right problem to have.
0: Except those opportunities
1: look like email, Twitter, well, and Facebook. It might be email, it might okay. be it might be Twitter. It just might be more opportunities. The idea is that even though it's the, the right problem to have undermines the very focus that led to success in the first place. Mm. And so you find a situation where someone is doing the same things they were doing before. They are still driven. They're still smart. They're still capable, but all of a sudden they are diffused in their efforts and they're trying to do way too many things. Right. And so you can see this in organizations all over the place. I mean, I often ask people to think through what organizations they know themselves that were once successful and that somehow
0: They became averagely successful, even failed entirely through it. Can you think of any? Yeah, actually, there's a couple of businesses that failed recently, like Zirtual, for example. or Was it Zirtual? I don't know much about Zirtual. I I feel bad if that's the wrong one. But (laughs) there was one that failed miserably that had a ton of clients. And uh, there are some that have problems even now with scaling and like what they're doing culture-wise, Zenefits, companies like that that you hear about. Rumors... On the uh, Silicon Valley startup scene. And if you take some that are more established, if you take like a Yahoo, for example, mm-hmm.
1: that's very well established, you know, despite best efforts to turn this around, where are we at? So this is what five CEOs, one time it was like five CEOs over two years that they, yeah. that they had this whole, everyone coming in smart, driven, trying to solve a problem. What's the problem? The problem was success. Early day success. Yahoo was the beginning of the consumer web. right? So they are the web for the consumer, right? right. In the early days. Yeah. They could do it all. And so they kept on trying to do it all. And that's it. That's the error right there. So as soon as Google comes along, specializes, well, now Google is going to be better at search. than right. Yahoo can be at that. They can't be great at everything. Right. And so you know Yahoo has been trying to correct that problem. And it's a very, very tough problem for them to solve. Because they've got the problem of what we call like 5% problem, which means all of their consumers only use 5% of their services but it's not the same 5%. Right, right So sure. there's no easy solution for them now because it's been built sort of almost generation on generation of leadership with this same challenge. So here's an example. It's true for companies, but it's also true for the individuals inside of these companies. That's what I found, was that you have also individuals who start off, they're very driven. They, In fact, right, I remember an executive I worked with, he was doing award-winning work. Partially as a result of that, got purchased by a larger, and as it turns out, more bureaucratic firm. Mm. He goes into the new regime. He wants to be a good citizen, which means, loosely speaking, he starts saying yes to everyone and everything without really thinking about it. So what happens to him? What happens to his stress?
0: Through the roof. What
1: happens to the quality of his work? Down Down drain. So here is someone who is a high-talent individual who all of a sudden is, I don't know, overworked and underutilized. They're not top talent anymore because of this strategy. Now, what happens in the end? He decides, because of some counterintuitive advice, he should retire in role, which is different than stay, quit, and don't tell anyone. Mm -hmm. It's not that. But he realized, look, this isn't going to work. I've got to act as if I'm only going to be paid for the value I create, not how many emails I respond to, not how many meetings I go to. At the end of all of that experience, he said, I got my life back. He was able to eat dinner with his wife at, at night, go to the gym every night. So that was good on a personal level. But then on a professional basis, he said, I found space again on my schedule. And in that space, I found my creative freedom. And in his creative freedom, he found his ability to contribute better. So by the end of the year, he got one of the largest bonuses of his whole career. Performance evaluation went up. And there's this success story. That's what's at play between non-essentialism and essentialism. Non-essentialism promises, if you can just fit it all in, do it all, say yes to everyone, you will succeed. Essentialism says, it doesn't say, essentialism doesn't say say no to everyone and everything. I didn't write a book called Noism. Essentialism says figure out what's really essential and put your energies into those less but better. Fewer things done better is a better strategy of breaking through to the next level.
2: Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs and finding the right platform has always been a
3: challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire, you need Indeed. Now, back
0: to the show. And if we're on Fox News, this is where I would say thank you and we'd wrap your little sound bite review, right? right? But uh, Now we're going to go further. Now we can go further. See, as soon as we exhaust the stuff you've said 100 times, now that's we're... when it gets really, really good. Let's do it. But that was good and was interesting. And I think it is kind of epidemic level. I mean, people are doing this with jobs, careers, school, whatever it is. I see this in college. I remember, for me at least, I saw it in college where I had to do everything. Mm. I had to do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And I remember even in law school asking a professor which classes we should be sure we take mm-hmm. and he listed out what would take about five and a half years of a three-year program right if you had a really ambitious class schedule you need to take all your core classes but you know tax law is a good one then a corporate law and then international law for sure at least one or two of those and then this one and then some other extra and it was just like how are we going to possibly specialize in anything and his advice right. was don't do that which right. is terrible advice in my opinion but we see this at home or uh, even in our careers saying yes to everything but Even in our personal life at home and our family life, people overcommit themselves because of a little bit of FOMO, but also this sort of thought that if we don't say yes to everything, we're letting somebody else down. Mm -hmm. Do we have to just become okay with letting other people down, or are we actually not really letting them down long term? What have you learned about this?
1: Well, one of the things I've learned is that there's a trade-off here, which is do you want short-term popularity or longer-term respect? Mm -hmm. And if you just are going for popularity all the time, then you'll just end up being very reactive to every request, every possible uh, thing that you could be doing, anything anyone is doing, that strategy is not the same as service. It's not the same as loving people. It's not the same as making a contribution. It's just being pulled into the social pressure to do everything on the basis that by doing everything, you will be successful with people and successful in your life and make your best contribution. If that's true, I've said it the second time I'm saying it, people should do it. If right. it's working for them, sure. If it's getting them what they want and if it's making a difference in the world, don't don't listen to me. Keep doing it. On the basis that it might not be, on the basis that it might be a bit of a con underneath like like malware that it's sort of it's pretending to be true but actually isn't true, then maybe we ought to look at something else. Look at an alternative approach. And the alternative approach isn't being less helpful to people. It's being the most helpful you can be. But you get to be the most helpful by being more selective, by being more thoughtful, by saying yes with these constraints, mm-hmm. yes under these circumstances. And so you start to be able to utilize yourself, your own resources in the way that makes the best contribution in the world. I'm really eager, it's one of the drivers for writing essentialism, was that I could and others could live at their highest point of contribution. And you simply can't be utilized at your highest point of contribution if you say yes to everyone and everything that anybody's doing in this environment. You just
0: That isn't what is produced. Have you seen Cal Newport's Deep Work? That I book? have, yeah. yeah. So that's these kind of dovetail really nicely. And for those of, who've heard the show with me and him, it's all about getting rid of some of these extraneous things, so you can focus on what really matters and That's move right. ahead because of that. It sounds like you learned this stuff the hard way. I mean, I went to law school in part because you have an opportunity, you have an option, you better take it. That was the wisdom when I was growing up. You know I went to law school. I do. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So no, this we're is, both culpable of making We yeah, Made decisions. the same mistakes.
1: I mean, this conversation is about 17 years almost to the day when I, I was visiting a friend here in the United States. I was at law school in England, and I somebody said in passing to me, they said, if you do decide to stay in America, then you should come and help us on this project. And I never did help them with that, but the question gave me permission to rethink. Permission to say, well, what if I didn't do what I'm doing? What if I didn't stay committed to what I've currently committed to? And so I made this uh, 20-minute brainstorm, what would you do if you could do anything? And when I was finished, I was really struck by the idea, not by what was on it, but by what's not on the list. And law school wasn't on the list. (laughs) Of course. So here I am at law school, suddenly with this awareness and also the geographical space to really wonder, well, why are you doing it? Maybe you don't have to. And really from the moment that thought came, I never went back, never psychologically, never even physically back to the law school. There's a different thing that's inside of me, a different burning yes. And uh, and it was right about that point I remembered I'd better call my parents.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. By the way, you're still going to help me out with these tuition loans, right? Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me, when I I went to North Korea, actually, a few times on a vacation, uh, tourism, and I remember asking one of the guides who lives in North Korea, where would you go if you could go anywhere? And she said, oh, Mount Pekto, up in the north of Korea. And I I, I thought, is this just, like, hyper-patriotism, or what are we talking about? I said, no, 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 anywhere in the world. And she goes, I don't know, maybe somewhere to practice my English. And I was like, anywhere in the whole world, maybe, like, Africa or something? And she goes whoa, Africa? Like it never had crossed her mind that you would ever be able to go there and see giraffes and things like that. And we were talking about animals and things like that. And she was just like, it was like saying, where do you want to go on vacation? And someone's like, let's go to Mars. And you're like, hold on a second. Yeah, yeah. But we're thinking Disneyland or SeaWorld.
1: I think that what you're saying is such a great example because the number of choices has expanded so fast, but our out-of-date way of dealing with it that maybe got us through in previous generations is discombobulating under the pressure of these options. And the irony is that in an era of so many options, of so many cool things that you could do, instead of being able to select that one thing that go to some different continent, and instead of doing that, we're just consumed with a bunch of okay things, things that aren't great to us. They don't spark joy for us. They aren't our highest point of contribution. In this environment, with all these options, we ought to be able to, with the right level of selectivity, design a life that really matters, that really inspires us and blesses other people. That's what essentialism is about. So essentialism isn't really about essentialism. It's not about it as a subject. It's about trying to challenge and inspire people that they have permission to design a life that they really want to pursue. Yeah, I like this. You didn't always follow these rules, right? So I received an email from my boss at the time, and they said uh, Friday would be a very bad time for your wife to have a baby she was expecting at the time of course right Uh, otherwise that would have been an even odder email (laughs) Uh, and the reason was because i need you to come to this client meeting and so on and so friday comes we're in the hospital that is when my daughter's born we're and instead of being able to be focused on that priority event that clearly important moment i'm feeling torn Mm -hmm. and my question I, i wasn't consciously asked at the time is how can i do both how can i somehow be here Support my wife, make that okay. Be there for my daughter and every you know, just everything. Well, and, yeah, exactly <laughs> right. So, how can I also
0: be there? And in the end, you know, to my shame, I go to the meeting. Oh God, it's such it's painful to hear. Isn't that painful? Yeah. I, when I read that, I was like, Oh man, this must burn even now. Burns.
1: Burns now. Yeah. Right. It does. And you know, so I go to the meeting. I remember afterwards they said to me, "The client will respect you for the choice you just made." That was their summary.
0: And I don't know about that. I well, think they. Probably would have respected you more if you'd gone to your daughter's I think that's instead. probably
1: true. And the look on their faces did not evince that sort of confidence anyway. Mm. But even if they did, and even if some amazing thing had come from that meeting, I, clearly, you can see it. It's obvious in hindsight. I can see it, of course. I'd made a fool's bargain. Mm-hmm. And so I was left with this question of why. And also the learning, if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. That's really where I learned that single idea. And now now I have to keep holding on to it. Now I have to keep coming back to it, anchoring back to that discovery. What's really most important now? And how can I construct my life in such a way that I'm focused on that thing one at a time?
0: I agree. I mean, you write, don't major in minor things. Mm-hmm. However, how do we decide what's important? It's not always really obvious. And sometimes everything looks important.
1: Well, that's really what the non-essentialist believes. The non-essentialist believes that everything's essential. And the essentialist believes that almost nothing is essential. I think that the reality is more like the essentialist sees it. That's why it's a powerful idea. It's not just a mind trick. It is the idea that most stuff is noise. Most stuff is just stuff. It doesn't matter one way or another. So the trick of life is to create enough space to figure that out. I think that when people create space, it becomes very clear to them.
0: Because by create space, you mean get off the hamster wheel of busy crap for a second to realize that all the stuff you're doing is you on the hamster wheel.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, practically, I I think about it being every course someone should hold a personal quarterly offsite. Oh, I like this. You schedule somewhere between half a day and a day. Uh, I tend to take a full day. And you're asking all the big questions. So what are my three to five most important life goals? Out of those, actually, I've gone even further than that. Sometimes I'm asking what's my three to five 100 year vision goals 100 year Yeah, vision. yeah, the, the, like it's, legacy you're already gone type stuff. Yeah, definitely beyond oneself. What do I want my grandchildren's life to be like? What do I want their learning to have been? And when I can think in those very very long-term perspective, it helps to distinguish between the vital few and the trivial many that on a daily or even minute-to-minute basis can be very hard to discern between because it's all just coming at us. So a 100 year vision really pushes one to think clearly can you believe your grandpa wore this crap on camera (laughs) (laughs) exactly right i want that i want that moment for them to be and me to be thinking about my own role within a much longer intergenerational story and so that's the first thing the second thing is then you break that down as you can imagine right to like okay what are some of the three to five goals you want to achieve this year what do you want to do over the next 90 days A chance to celebrate. I definitely always take the time to go through a a list of gratitude, like what has happened, what have been the biggest wins over the last 90 days. So I'm reviewing the last 90, planning for the next 90, and you come out of that session with a clear sense of here are the just the few goals that are the ones I really want to achieve over this next 90 days.
0: Do you then outline those goals like how you're going to do that, or is it more of a broad overview? No, there's a whole set
1: of different things I've done on this. I don't do it the same every time, but I normally go through those goals and then say what are the obstacles, and not how do I work around those obstacles, but how do you learn from every obstacle? Because an obstacle is really just your brain's best effort to articulate the problem that must be solved to achieve your goal.
0: I think this is a really important thing to do. It's so easy to skip it thinking, I've got this, right? right? It's like using a calendar. No, I can remember everything I have to do next week. But you really, you're not able to do that.
1: And actually, it's a great segue because I think the second thing people need to do to create space is a weekly design session. So every week, you're using each week as like perfect design period. I have a preference for a week over a day or over a month. If you're doing monthly planning, it's still quite long term. You know, you're not dealing with decisions you're about to really have to do. If you're doing it daily only, then I think your life will become reactive. I've noticed that myself anyway. If I'm just doing it day at a time, then it's just hitting me too randomly. Okay, what's on my calendar? Oh, that's on my calendar. So a weekly design session you're really now translating the work you've done on the course of the offsite into this week's essential plan. And you're trying to remove things that are no longer relevant, that are no longer the most valuable things. I think those combination, those two things work quite well in starting to move a life from a non-essentialist reactive life to an essentialist proactive
0: life. I think this is a really good idea. However, a lot of people are thinking right now, great, okay, tell my boss I'm going to do an offsite where I'm going to remove parts of my job and then not somehow get fired, right? Yeah, so it doesn't feel realistic. Right, it's easy for like two essentially self-employed guys to see, talk to everybody about how they should, how it should be. remove duties from their life yeah. that they feel are non-essential.
1: Yeah, for a lot of people it's not like...
0: Right, how do we even start to say no to things without just getting straight up fired? So we've been talking about
1: non-essentialism on the one hand and essentialism on the other. And you could walk all the way from being very undisciplined, more very extreme on one side to very disciplined on the other. That's one continuum. There's a second continuum. And that is between things that we have no control of at the bottom and things that we have total control at the top. And so what I always say to people is, yes, you want to be moving towards the essentialist side, but you've got to start with the things you control. What often I hear people hear when they hear essentialism, they get that continuum but they start with thinking about the things they have almost no control over. So they start by saying, a little bit like your question, well, how could I say no to my boss's boss? If they come to me and directly ask, you need to do this, and I say no, that's a career-limiting move. That's a fireable offense almost. I am agreeing with that, right? This is the nature of hierarchical institutions. So don't start there, right? Don't start by saying no to your boss's boss. What is something you have complete control over, for example? What about the first three to 10 minutes of your day? Surely we have higher control over that than we have over our boss's boss's decisions. So start there. Start moving towards the essentialist in the things you do have control over. Build your essentialist muscles there. So slowly over time, as you start to understand better your own decision-making process, you can add to it skills of how to negotiate non-essentials and influence those things that you don't have control over, but
2: maybe can start to influence. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify.
3: That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered.
2: Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell
3: more with less effort, thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries.
2: Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify.
3: Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm.
0: Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all the amazing sponsors and discount codes, visit theartofcharm.comslash slash advertisers. Now, back to the show. This is great because otherwise what happens, right, is instead you face this insurmountable wall and you're totally. just thinking, how am I going to climb this mountain? Right. All right, first step, go to my boss's boss and tell him, no, no more no, TPS yeah, yeah, reports. Exactly. It's just not going to work. It's not non-essential for me. But if it's kind of like, well, I can get up in the morning and just not check my social media and maybe look for urgent emails or even put an autoresponder that says I only check in the afternoon or whatever is acceptable you start, in your office you culture. You start
1: small on the things you can control. Get the phone out of the bedroom.
0: Get it out. Right. Get,
1: get one of these old... Timex clocks. Yeah, right. Little clock... And get the phone out of there, get your computer out of there. Yeah. This is Indiculous. you have control over that space. If you don't create boundaries there, there won't be any. You know this. Yeah. Now like if you if you have your phone by your and, and I'm not going to ask you, I'm not going to put you on the spot. Most no, people have their phones right there by their bed. Hell yeah, I got my phone next to my and, bed. And this allows this airplane. Uh, airplane okay, yeah. good for you. This allows other people to always be in your space. It totally does. And yeah. the risk of that is that our whole life does become a function of other people's agenda for us. Add to that our own anxiety around checking the, our phone and being connected. That's not other people doing that to us sometimes. It's just our choice. Start where you have a bit of control. Put the phone away. Get rid of it in that morning. Those first 10 minutes. I, I recommend people when they wake up in the morning, it's the first few minutes is what are you grateful for? What are the important right, things the gratitude that you're gratitude. Practice. Number two is what are the two or three goals you've identified as being really important to you over the next quarter or more? So that you're just getting kind of tuning yourself to that. Oh, so not the day, the, the no, longer, longer term. term. Longer term. So you're now moving into things that really matter to you. And then third is like, how can I make my best service today? How can I love the best? How can I serve the best? Because essentialism has nothing whatsoever to do with being more selfish. It just has to do with more essential things. Sure. To me, that practice is so much better than just, first thing, okay, check my phone. Now I'm into that reactive mode already. And it's the start of the day. I'm priming myself for distraction if I spend the first 10 minutes on the phone.
0: Right. Going through the long-term goals keeps you away from the shorter term stuff. It's hard to think about going through your inbox if you're trying to knock down a book proposal.
1: Well, that's, It's interesting you mentioned a book proposal because that's just the kind of thing that people aren't emailing us about. You have to act upon those things. And these goals, this is what helps us then move our weekly planning and our daily experience from this very reactive, non-essentialist norm. And what's the result of that? What's the reward of that? You can actually do something that matters. You can actually move forward on a goal that you feel like will make a big difference in the world. That's the right trade-off. You can do a bunch more email of just reactive constantly. And it's not just even email, is it? It's social media. It's just endless like cycles. It's being a news junkie. It's whatever we get sucked in on the phone versus achieving something that we've
0: identified as as meaningful Basically, we have to live by design and not by default, which I think is is also written explicitly in the book. And that's kind of a novel concept. It sounds so simple, like, yeah, okay, whatever. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to brush it off. But when we look at our day and we ask how much of it we actually have designed, it's usually a pretty small percentage. Even for those of us that are self-employed, we think we've designed our whole day. We really haven't. Again, about the idea of being self-employed, you you have
1: control of your schedule only if you choose to. You can still be as reactive in any environment. In fact, this is one of the funny things about essentialism is that sometimes people will say things like, well, this is okay for the CEO, but not for me. But that's only true until you talk to the CEO. And the CEO says to me, well, it's okay for everybody in the organization, but not for me. I've got so many people expecting things from me. It's easy for them, but not for me. Everyone has a set of reasons that they have bought into non-essentialism. But what I think it all comes down to, ultimately, is that people don't know they have chosen non-essentialism. They just have adopted it. They got washed into the drain completely of non Completely, non-essentialism. Because, because it's like such a monopoly view right now. Sure. Until we sort of wake up almost like a matrix moment to, oh, wow, this is not the normal state of things. This is just the state of our culture at the time we happen to be here. And so when people wake up to it, it's almost like what I want for people is to discover how revolting
0: non-essentialism yeah,
1: yeah, actually is. And, and we're swimming in this. cesspool. Yeah, it is. This thing that is a lie, we're swimming in it. And it's having such a cost. I mean, sometimes I joke about all of this, but sometimes it makes me furious to think of the cost in individuals' lives as to what they wish their life could be, what it could be, in fact, if they made different trade-offs, and what they've been conned into believing. I mean, we've been sold a bill of goods. And the consequences are serious and
0: significant. Do you see this as being primarily caused by technology or is there a greater sort of work culture that has creeped in and uh, now is being exacerbated? I don't by think that? it's been created by technology. I
1: mean, that sounds like a contradiction, but I don't think it is. The idea of non-essentialism has been with us for a long time. And I think we can trace it back with a little history lesson. If you go back to the 1500s, the word priority came into the English language. What does it mean? The prior thing, meaning the very first thing. It is by definition singular, the first thing. And for the next 500 years, it stayed singular, which is pretty amazing. That means that nobody in the English-speaking language, no one talking like we are today, for half a millennium actually used the term priorities. Because there can only be one by its own definition. So why did it change? What happened? And I think it was in response to the Industrial Revolution, where you were throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Lots of change for the better. Some changes not for the better. And so as we started talking about priorities, so now we're sort of 1900s, you can see there have been then phases of non-essentialism ever since then. So waves of it. So the Industrial Revolution was the first, the post-Second World War was the second phase, where we we come back from this most discombobulating experience the world's known, the, the, the industrialized world has ever known. And what do we do? Like when was the mourning period? When did we take the year or the decade to adjust to this experience, to go through a sort of cathartic process. We didn't do a thing. I mean, we didn't take a year. We didn't take a month. We barely took a minute. So what did we do instead of dealing with that? We followed what the Romans called a panem strategy, panem. It's Latin for bread and circus. Panem was a strategy that was deliberately used in Rome and as part of the Roman Empire to distract the masses yeah. from the problems that were starting to be unaddressable in their society. So that they were so significant. And so instead, you just distract people, right? You build the Colosseum. You have people distracted by bread and circus. That's what we did after the Second World War. So everything became about, and this is when we became consumers for a start. Mm-hmm. We weren't consumers. The founding fathers didn't build a constitution for consumers. They weren't thinking of themselves as consumers. They, were, they thought of themselves as citizens. So a fundamental change took place in the post-World War. So this is the second wave of non-essentialism. And the third is the one we've all lived through the last 10 years. So what I'm saying is that technology has exacerbated the challenge. It's been built on top of a non-essentialist assumption. But the assumption that malware is still the problem. It's been with us growing and mm-hmm. now it's at a sort of fever pitch, but it's actually been with us all the time, slowly taking its, its toll on individuals.
0: If we start to create different habits, we start to edit things out, we start to, as you outline in the book, make suggestions for our employer rather than telling them I'm not doing this. Right. First of all, how do we get our family maybe to do this with us? Because I feel like it could be one of those issues where if I solve it, but my wife and three kids and mother-in-law, they're still doing things the old right. way. I'm just getting sucked into it. Right. It's right. like uh, Scarface. Every time I try to get out, they suck me right back right. in to their non-essentialism.
1: Yeah, so what I've learned is this. I've learned that essentialism is either done collectively or not at all. Ah, interesting. Okay. So I've learned that you have to do it with other people. In fact, I recommend people that the most realistic step. The very first thing to become an essentialist is probably to read the book. And maybe that sounds self-serving, but that's <laughs> sure. what I've learned, right? Naturally. You just get the language. Yeah. Get the language yourself so you can start seeing non-essentialism for what it is because it starts to name it. And then you say, okay, who is somebody else who I want to take this journey with? And you read the book together. So now there's two people that have new language. And in the language, the language is such an important thing because without language, you can't talk about a problem. With language, you can talk about this. You can actually start to address it. And so that's where I'd start with next. And maybe your whole family does it. And it worked the same. Who's someone who's safe? Maybe your boss is safe and you share it with them. Maybe the whole team is safe. You all read it together. Don't even worry about changing a thing. Just read it together. The language itself is a change. And allows you to slowly, over time, as the journey is definitely a long journey, allows you to have different conversations. And if you can change your conversation, ultimately you can change decisions and the culture. But you can't change decisions or culture if you don't change the language. So don't read the book and then try to execute it on your own. Because everyone else is still swimming in a different logic. There are people that contact me all the time now about this. They've done it. They've read it. They've got the people in their organization to read it. They've got their family to read it. And then they're able to make tremendous cultural shifts in how they operate, how they work together, break through to the next level personally and professionally. Really amazing success
0: stories that have come along, but you just got to do it together. What about boundary setting? I mean, you make kind of a big deal about this in the book, personal life, work life. There needs to be a hard stop, a hard line between that. Why does that work? Why is that important? And how do we do it? Well, because boundaryless living, which is centered in non-essentialism,
1: believes something that's not true. What it believes is that there are no trade-offs. If there were no trade-offs, just be a non-essentialist. In fact, if there's no trade-offs, we all ought to be. Because if there's no trade-offs, you can just do everything all the time and therefore will achieve everything you want. That's what non-essentialism keeps saying is true. If it's true, like I keep saying to you, if it's true, if it works, keep doing it. If it doesn't, then you have to start accepting, well, there are trade-offs I'm making. Every time I make a choice to check my phone at home, every time I do that, I'm not paying attention to one of my children. Every time I'm talking to my wife and I suddenly get pulled into an an email or a text, I'm suddenly disrupting the experience there. So I've got to start facing the trade-offs that non-essentialism lies about. Start seeing what the actual costs are to the decisions I'm making. And look, you can multitask, right? That's really proven. You can definitely multitask. What you can't do is multi-focus. And so if I care at work or at home about focusing, if I believe that my relationships are better when I focus on them and aren't distracted, then there will be a benefit to doing it and there'll be a trade-off to not doing it. Longest I think I've been without my phone at all was like two and a half weeks on a family vacation, in Costa Rica, right? We get out there into the jungle. My children still talk about that trip. They still noticed what a difference it made to have their dad totally unplugged
0: from this just constant
1: tapping in yeah. our
0: life. Must make you f- feel a little bit bummed that you didn't do it earlier, that it's difficult to do even now. We're going to be
1: off track 90% of the time. You're just like any flight that you're on, you go from San Francisco to New York. Your flight is off track 90% of the time. It gets to where it's supposed to get to, or when it's supposed to get because it keeps coming back on track. And that's key for essentialism. To try and be an essentialist, like with a perfectionist mindset, is to be trying to be an essentialist with a non-essentialist approach. Does that make sense?
0: It does. It's It's like trying to roll a boat in two directions at the
1: same time. I like that metaphor. It's trying to say, unless I can be a perfect essentialist, meaning unless I can do everything perfect now, then I shouldn't even bother. An essentialist doesn't see that or say that at sure, all. Yeah. They, say, right. they say, there's a few things that matter. I'm going to get off track. I'm going to keep coming back on track. There's a lot of stuff I'm going to get wrong. I'm not going to get this perfect. I'm going to keep coming back. And so I have all sorts of things built into the routine and structure of my life that keeps me coming back. So every Monday night is a family night, right? no matter what, no matter what that night is already siphoned off. How old are your kids? So I've got four children, uh, not very essentialist to <laughs> me. Yeah. 13,
2: practice.
0: 12, 10, and 7. So right now you're in the point where you can still say Monday night is family. Yeah, that's night.
1: right. I did the same thing as well, right? So this was a church recommendation. This is years ago, 40 years ago. And so my family, all growing up, did this. We weren't perfect in our family by any means. We were off track 90% of the time, same. But every Monday, as sure as I was going to eat on Monday, we were going to have a family. That's great. And so. And so there are things that you can build routines and structures that make execution of what's essential easier. And so while you're not going to get it right, well, I know I don't get it right. I'm trying to build a system that supports the things that matter most.
0: You mentioned in the book that essentialism has to be at the center of every decision that you make. So it sort of seems like... I'm trying to reconcile the off-track 90% of the time with every decision you make has to have essentialism at the core. Why can't we just kind of weekend warrior this thing?
1: Well, I think that the idea that I'm trying to explain in the book is that it needs to be a mindset shift. So sometimes when I'm teaching about essentialism, someone will come up to me afterwards and i say, look, this is so great. This is a great reminder of one more thing I need to do. As if essentialism is just one more thing, that becomes an irony. It's not one more thing. It's not another thing to add into the overstuffed closet of our lives. It's a different way of doing everything. So it's not that we're going to have our behaviors correct every time, all the time. But what we can keep coming back to is a mindset shift. where We start to think about the world differently. We start to think like an essentialist. Then over time, the behaviors become instinctive, spontaneous. And then we start to build new routines around that new insight. So the work itself, real work, is the mindset. To get the mindset of an essentialist. Making it something that you are instead of something that you just do That's right. sometimes. Something you become, not something that you are adding on top of a non-essentialist mindset. Because that won't work. That's the problem. If you think like a non-essentialist and try to behave as an essentialist, you're still going to end up trying to efficiently do way too many things. And so you're still going to get the same results. The mindset has to shift. Tools, for example, we've been talking about technology. I'm not a Luddite. I'm not anti-tools. I'm not anti-technology. I work and and spend my life in Silicon Valley. But it makes a very poor master, good servant, poor master. That's why the mindset shift is the one that has to happen first.
0: Great stuff from Greg here. Yes, being an essentialist, not just doing essentialism, but actually being it, living by design, not by default, and setting up those boundaries and actually keeping them so that we don't end up driving ourselves crazy and getting fired or letting all of our hard work go to waste. Really good stuff from Greg. If you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank him on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes, as well as the book, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. Other resources mentioned on the show will also be in there, and you can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the cheat sheet, the notes for this episode, and we'll link to the show notes right on your phone. I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. You can engage with me there, ask me questions, or generally harass me from a distance. Boot camp and Art of Charm live program details at theartofcharm.com. Remember, we're sold out a few months in advance, so if you're thinking about it even a little bit, you should get in touch ASAP to get some info from us so you can plan ahead. Also, don't forget about the social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or in the states here, you can text charmed to 33444, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. The challenge is all about improving your networking and your connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier in the show, and I do regular videos with drills and exercises every week to help you move forward. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or text charmed in the US to 33444. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get
2: more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at The Art of